Lord, we come now to your word and we celebrate the, the good news of the gospel. We, we have shared together in the, the feast of life and forgiveness and joy. We have you as Father. We have relationship. We have reconciliation. We have your Spirit in us by grace. We have your Son as Savior. And now we have your word. You speak. You speak. And we get to hear this morning, to listen to your voice, to, to feast upon your word like food for our souls. We pray now, Lord, that you would move in power, that your spirit would stir and land these words in us, that we would be changed. And Lord, if there be any here who do not know you yet as Savior and Lord, I pray that you would employ this sermon to that end like only you can do. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. The offense of the gospel, we're going to begin in chapter uh, 7, verse 18. Verse 18, and we're picking up, remember last week, Jesus uh, left us off with raising a man from the dead. He spoke words. That's all he had to do. He says, wake up. And the man sat up and began talking. And they unwrapped his head, and there he was. He was alive, totally healthy, and given another opportunity to praise God with life from the Son. Now, we move now into the next verses, and I titled these uh, verses here, Imprisoned and Uncertain. Imprisoned and Uncertain. Let's just kind of go through these verses little by little here. The disciples of John, that is John the Baptist, uh, reported all of these things to him. And so you have disciples of John the Baptist who are following Christ. They're witnessing these things take place. And especially this man who was raised from the dead, maybe the most spectacular miracle so far that Jesus has performed. And they go down to report to John who's in prison and tell him all these things. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, he sent them to the Lord saying, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? So they carry these words of John. Now, this should strike us as puzzling. This should come to us as a, a contrast with what we heard John speak but just, just before, or in the other Gospels even. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Or... I am not worthy to even uh, tie your sandal, let alone baptize you. You should baptize me, Jesus. And yet, Jesus says, no, this is in keeping. This is to fill, uh, fulfill all righteousness. And so, John, clearly, by the Holy Spirit of God, who, by the way, has indwelled him since conception, since before he was born, he's been indwelled by the Spirit. This man is struggling. He's in a rough spot. And he sends this question to Jesus that catches us kind of out of left field. What? Why would John ask a question like that? Hmm. The prophet is in prison. Now, just a refresher of our memories here. Um, why is he in prison? Well, John uh, the Baptist took issue with a situation that Herod was uh, going through, I'll give you a, a little glimpse of the story from Mark. It was Herod 
who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, who was his, brother's, uh, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. Okay, so just think about this. Herod one day is like, you know what? I really like my brother's wife. I want her to be my wife. So he did it. He just, he rolled over Philip and he took his wife and said, now you're my wife. John the Baptist was incensed at this. This is wrong. It is sin. And he proclaimed it and preached and told them to his face. John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. That is adultery. That is a breach of the vow. Now, Herodias had a grudge because of this. There was public proclamation and public accountability being brought by the Lord to Herod, and he didn't like it, but Herodias hated it. And she kept a grudge against John the Baptist for this. And I'll tell you how the story uh, unfolds in a little bit, but that's where he's at. He is bound and in prison, and I want to show you where he's being kept. Um, Macarius, Macarius, I think I'm saying that right. This is the coolest picture I've ever seen. This is a helicopter shot over the city of Jerusalem. So let me get my pointer out. Here is the Dome of the Rock. This is Jerusalem. The temple court is right here. You see this uh, along the way here? And uh, so all of this is Jerusalem. The city of David is down here. Um, and then you go a little ways this way. Here is, we talked about this in Sunday school. This is the Mount of Olives right here. As Dan was saying, it's more of a, a bump. It's, it's not a significant hill. Here are all those graves that I was telling you about. And then you go all the way across here, Dead Sea. Here we go. We have the Dead Sea right down there. So you can get a kind of a bird's eye view of how close together, really, the Holy Land is. We're talking from Jerusalem to the Dead Sea, not a huge distance. And then if you see way up on the top here, you see this little circle? This is a Roman fortress that has been rebuilt a couple different times, first by Herod the Great, and then uh, his son, uh, Herod Antipas, is using it. And this is um, over on the side of Jordan. So Jordan is over here, and that fortress is where John is being held in prison, way down in this fortress. I'll give you a closer-up uh, view of it. Now it looks mostly like a hill, but what they did is they took a, a natural hill and then they built on top of it um, tremendous fortification and defenses. And uh, you can still go there to this day. Apparently, we, we didn't get a chance to go into Jordan, but you can still go and actually see chains uh, down in this prison area where John the Baptist was held. And here's an artist's rend rendering of what the palace may have looked like when uh, John the Baptist was there. Uh, we know that there was some fortifications around here. Now, deep down in the dungeon down here is where John is held, and he sends this question from this place to Jesus, who is still in the area of Galilee. And he wants to know, what gives? Right? Are you the one? Are you the Messiah? Or should we be looking for another? What is behind this question? What is it that John is struggling with about Jesus? He's hearing all the things that Jesus is doing. And yet, he's, he sends a question like this, which honestly is, well, it's like John the Baptist. It's very direct. 
He was a very direct kind of guy. Hmm. This is the prophecy, I think, that maybe he had in his mind from Isaiah. Let me just read this, okay? The Spirit of the Lord is upon me uh, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, the opening of the prison to those who are bound. Hmm. Okay, liberty to captives, the opening of prison to those who are bound to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of God, of our God. If you remember John's preaching, he was a a very direct and fiery preacher and his proclamation was repent because judgment is coming. You know, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight His paths. You better be ready because if you're not, fire will fall. And he, uh, he preached a, a very fiery message. And as he hears these reports, he's hearing, yes, okay, good news for the poor, that's good. Um, binding up the brokenhearted, that's good. Jesus Himself has used these references to describe His ministry and His calling. But what about the captives in prison? Hey, did you forget about me? I know I'm across the Dead Sea, but seems like you could, you know, bust me out of here. I think in John's mind, his work wasn't done. I think in, in his mind, his proclamation was still desiring to, to prepare the way and And so you have this season of ministry, unbelievable ministry that took place for John as he prepared the soil and and straightened the path and preached a baptism of repentance. And Jesus then came and inaugurated his ministry and he finds John now in prison. Hmm. I think John is battling frustration and even doubt. Even doubt. You know, It's almost like he's saying, this is not going the way I thought it would go. I thought that that, that something very different would unfold. It could even be that John had in his mind a more political upheaval. Jesus the Messiah is going to come, establish his rule. We're going to deal with the Romans. We're going to bust out the prisoners. We're going to deal with Herod, that adulterous man, right? Where is that? He's struggling. You ever been in a situation where you're just confused and you're just like, Lord, how is this working? This is not the way I thought it was going to go. What are you doing here? And you're wrestling to trust. You're fighting for faith. You're, You're struggling to understand. And you're frustrated. It's a very scary place to be. Because sometimes people can get angry with God. And let me just be really, really clear. I posted this on my Facebook recently. Friends, you are never justified to be angry with God. Let me just say that really clear. You may not understand, and it may be frustrating but you never have a platform to stand on righteously 
and point your finger at God and say, I disagree. You're wrong. And I'm angry. Never. Never. So when we are inclined to struggle and, oh, maybe be angry, be careful. Because sin is crouching at the door. Humble yourself before the Lord. He is good and He is sovereign. He's at work. Three things of application here that just struck me. I, I would say this. Many times God will work in ways we do not expect. Do you agree? You just rewind the story of your own life. Many times, and I say this purposely, many times, right? My ways, God says, are not your ways. And my thoughts are not your thoughts. We don't understand the mind of the Lord. We can't counsel Him, direct His hand. He will many times work in ways that just don't fit our concept of how it should be. We have a God who is bigger than our box can contain. And that should stir us to worship. Stir us to worship and trust. Secondly, God will often, God will often employ situations and circumstances that we will find uncomfortable and even painful. God is able, He is so sovereign that He can employ even sinful, horrible, catastrophic, nightmare scenarios to His purposes and good ends. The story of Joseph, okay? You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Was it evil what his brothers did to him? Absolutely it was. It was unthinkable. It was evil. It was evil. And God took that evil and employed it to save for good. God's that big. No one else can pull this off. We, we could never even begin to do this on our level. But God is able to take the most horrific situations of your life and bring about His good, gracious, and sovereign purposes for you. And we know this, that in everything that happens to us, God is working our good and His glory. There is not a greater foundation stone to stand upon when the storm winds blow. He is sovereign, He is good, and He is at work. Number three, God will always be accomplishing far more than we ever expected. And I say that without even flinching. God will always be accomplishing far more than you could ever even imagine. And I'll tell you why. Because we are limited in so many ways. We, we have limited eyesight and experience. And God is the, the, the Lord of all things. He is over it all. In one simple moment, 
God can be accomplishing 10 million things, we maybe can glimpse a few. So you ask, why did the planes hit the towers? We maybe can grasp and glimpse a few things. God has 10 million reasons why He sovereignly allowed that to take place. The worst answer is to say He couldn't do a thing about it. No. It was evil, and he allowed it for his purpose, which is always good and just and right. This brings us into contact with everyday interactions. We all have in our lives times where we scratch our head and say, Lord, I don't, I don't know what you're doing. How will we respond when we're there? This is, I think, the call that Jesus' answer gives to John. Listen to how he responds to this question. John is in a real place of doubt and struggle. Jesus gives an answer. It's a a three-part answer you can see on your sermon notes. The first is, number one, powerful demonstration. Okay, so I just picture Jesus taking these two uh, ambassadors from John, from the prison, and saying, tell you what, guys, can you just stand right? Yeah, right there. Just stand right there. Okay. You watching? You got your notepad? All right. Let's go. In that hour, he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits. And on many who were uh, blind, he bestowed sight. Okay? Just imagine being these two guys. Front row seat, miraculous, divine, authoritative Kingdom display of the Messiah. Your front row seat. John's going to struggle to believe that. Wow. Oh, good night. Did you see that? There, did you get that down? I got that down. They witness the, the tangible display of his authority. Confirming he is, in fact, the Messiah. He is the Messiah. The second part of his answer is prophetic fulfillment. Jesus then quotes, he quotes from a variety of of, of passages from Isaiah, and I love that he pulls in from different chapters and and puts them together. He says this to to the two men after they've witnessed these powerful things. Now, go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear, the dead are raised up. The poor have good news preached to them. So whether they were there to witness the raising of the dead man or whether Jesus raised more from the dead in their witness, somehow they have witnessed, they've seen and heard this, the raising of dead and all these other things. And this is what he says. Now, in this day, We have to remember, things spoken carry weight, but things unspoken also carry weight. When you're quoting from the prophet Isaiah, familiar passages, these men knew these passages. 
they hear what Jesus is saying, but they also are they're hearing what he's not saying. What does he not say in his answer to John? Which may have been at the forefront of John's mind. What about liberty for prisoners? What about breaking out those who are bound? Jesus doesn't say that. What about vengeance and fire and the day of, of the Lord that crushes the, the Roman occupation and deals with Herod? He doesn't say that either. This is a statement to John. As much in what he says as what he doesn't say. Promised blessing. He says this, Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Now the word offended there is scandalon in the Greek. It is a, a, a cause to, to sin or a st- the one who doesn't stumble because of me. Blessed is the one. Rather than sinning or stumbling at this, what do you do? trust you trust you stand on the rock of Christ don't trip over him and fall you turn to him not from him you cling to him rather than point the finger in anger at him keep trusting God's purposes John All is going according to plan. I think this is the answer that he gives to John. What is God's purpose for John? Well, let me tell you how the story ends. In the midst of utter corruption, King Herod has his uh, new wife's daughter do a dance that is unsightly, and she dances before him in such a way as they're partying that he very stupidly says, I will grant you anything you wish, just say it. And she says, well, I want to talk to my mom about that. So she goes back, and Herodias, who hates John, says, ask for the head of John the Baptist on on a platter. So she does. She goes back and Herod, in his foolish decision to give her this wish, is stuck. And so he follows through. He actually had regard for John the Baptist. He saw him as a prophet, even though he disagreed with him and and threw him in prison. this This is what he does. He sends down to the basement and kills John. And his head is brought as an answer to his promise. That is the plan for John. He died. You realize that in Revelation, we hear from under the table, whatever that means, that there are martyrs who cry out for the justice of God for the day of His judgment. And part of their cry is, How long, O Lord, until You avenge our blood? 
in justice and righteousness. How long? You know the answer he gives? That day will come when the number of martyrs that I have determined in my sovereign plan is filled up. And not a day sooner. God has purposed in His right, righteous, and just, all-God-glorifying plan that there would be a certain number of those who meet their death as martyrs for their faith to God's glory. And then He will avenge their blood. If you don't have a category for a God that big, it needs to grow. We worship a God who is big. And He has our life in His hand. He has our days. He ordains our story. He writes it. He's the author. And He knows what is for our best good and His glory. And He has the right to say, in this situation, through Jesus, keep trusting, John. Keep trusting. This is the plan. How many of the disciples lived out their days? One. All of the others were martyred. Only John. And he in exile. Comfort is not the highest goal for your life. Your comfort is not the highest esteem of God. It is His glory and the expression of your faith to live as Christ, to die as gain. And Paul died. And we might die well for His glory. Die for His glory. Live for His glory. We're His. We're His. Now, Jesus wants to give some words to show honor, I believe, to John. And so let's, let's consider this. The honor of John, the forerunner, verse 24. When, when John's messengers had gone, so they depart with that message and they're heading back down uh, to the fortress to give those words to John in prison. Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. Now, here's what I want to do, okay? Let's, let's answer these together. Uh, at the end of these questions, I want us to all hear say an emphatic, no! Okay? Are you up for this? Okay, here we go. What did you go out in the wilderness to see? A, a reed shaken by the wind? No. Good, good. Well, then what did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? No. Excellent. Behold, those who live uh, who are dressed in splendid clothing and, and live in luxury are in king's courts. I believe that Jesus is describing who John is. Who is this man? He's showing honor and regard for John. He's not, he's not saying John is a has-been. He wants the people to understand he is the forerunner. He was a strong man. Not a, not a reed shaking in the wind. In our day, it would be that you're know, driving by the used car lot and they've got that, that 
that air-powered thing that's doing all that, that, that would be in our day. He's not a, a wimpy, floppy, spineless reed shaken by the wind. He had a strong backbone. He wasn't dressed in soft clothing. The guy was wearing burlap. He came out of the woods eating locusts and wild honey. This guy was not part of the in crowd. He came as the messenger of God, sent by God with the word of God. So, who was he? What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes. Now, I imagine in the crowd, as, as big as it was, there may have been even some of those Pharisees. No! Who did not have regard for John. They did not follow his teaching. They took issue with it. But I think many of those people would have said, like we said today, yes, he was a prophet. Jesus himself responds. This is big. This is a big moment. Yes, I tell you, and even more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written. Behold, I, the Lord says, send my messenger before your face, Christ, who will prepare your way before you. Wow. That's a quote from Malachi chapter 3. And then Jesus adds in, I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. What a statement. By Christ himself, the Messiah, speaking of the one who prepared the way for the Messiah. To this, we must ask the question uh, for the Roman Catholics, what about Mary? I mean, if Jesus' righteousness and divinity is derivative from Mary, then certainly he would have said this of Mary, but he did not. He said it of John, which is another reason we do not bow to Mary or pray to Mary. She is a sinner, especially given grace by God, unmerited favor in, in a special way as the mother of Christ, but she is a sinner saved by Christ. But here's the thing. So is John. So is John. How do we understand the greatness of John? Was his greatness in the fact that he didn't wear soft clothes? Was his greatness in the fact that he ate locusts and wild honey? It, that he was a fiery preacher? Is that, was it an intrinsic greatness? Absolutely not. The honor that Jesus bestows upon John as one who is most great among all who have been born has everything to do with his proximity to the Messiah. He is the prophet who spoke above all prophets because he spoke preparing the way for me, Christ says. That's, his connection is to the Messiah. That's the greatness of John. Abraham didn't do that. Elijah didn't do that. Malachi didn't do that. Only John was chosen to have that special role of honor, and that by grace. By grace. And then he goes on to say this, and this just blows your mind. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. We're like, well, I'm in the kingdom. What does he mean? 
John served a special role at a point of transition, one foot in the old covenant, one foot in the new. He was paving the way, preparing the way. His faith was anticipatory. Our faith is celebratory. We have the king in all his greatness. We're brought into the kingdom. Some suggest that John is not then in the kingdom, and I say absolutely not. John is in the kingdom, but we come in the kingdom in faith, not because of greatness, but in repentance. This is a word that calls and, and, and validates his baptism of repentance for sin. Not what the, the, the Pharisees like to herald is all of their righteousness and all the deeds that they bring to the table, all the good things that they do to qualify. The kingdom of God. Our standing in the kingdom is because we know the king. Whatever greatness we may have is all owing to the greatest man who has ever lived, the king of kings and the Lord of lords. It is a derived greatness. And it is a humble joy. Now, wax or clay, we're given a couple verses here of, of transition. Luke uh, kind of gives us some commentary. Verse 29, when all the people heard this, the tax collectors too, uh, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John, but the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. Two very different responses are happening here. It reminds me of uh, what Spurgeon once said. He, he said, the same sun which melts the wax can harden the clay. And the same gospel which melts some to repentance, to their knees, to bow, will harden others in their rejection of it, in their sin. Will you be melted by the wax like wax softened in your heart? Or will you be hardened like the Pharisees? Those, even the tax collectors, who had confessed their sins and humbled themselves as needy people and partaken in the, in the baptism of repentance with John, they were delighting in God. He is just and righteous. Praise the Lord. This baptism is tied in with Christ. And those who had rejected that baptism were hardened to Jesus as well. The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Where do you stand this morning? Are you wax or clay? Are you softening in the gospel? Or do you feel resentment, hardening, opposition? I pray that we would all be the wax. Now, just a couple verses here in closing. Jesus gives some commentary, and it's a fascinating one. He employs the, the use of a simile here, and uh, let me just read it. To what then shall I compare the people of this generation? What are they like? They're like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. 
we sang a dirge, and you did not weep. And then he explains it, which is always wonderful when he does that for us. He said, for John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say, he has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton, a drunkard, and a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. I think Jesus is speaking here of two very familiar things that would have been common in the day. And these, these children that Jesus describes are, are reenacting two things that were very public and, and they would have witnessed many times. A funeral, right? You come together and you, you mourn and you grieve and, and the dirge plays and you join in the parade just like Jesus interrupted when he raised that man last week. That was John the Baptist. Repent. Judgment is coming. Fire will fall. Turn from your sins. Trust in God. Prepare the way. That's the dirge. And then Jesus arrives and He comes and He invites all who are weak and heavy laden, come, even tax collectors and sinners, come feast at this table. And they say, oh, look at this guy. Not righteous, not holy. John didn't eat. He must have a demon. Jesus eats. Glutton, drunkard. What's he saying? He's saying, your hearts are so hard. You can't see past the tip of your nose. God has graciously sent a prophet of prophets and you hardened your hearts. No, we don't, we're, we're not going to join in. We don't want to play that game. And then he sends the Son himself. The Messiah arrives, and they're in the same place. Arms folded. No, 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 no. No, we're too good for that. We don't want any part of that. It's a chosen blindness. It's hard-hearted rejection. Friends, it is what all of us do by default. It is autopilot response for sinners. And we will answer for it. We choose it. We are responsible for it. And if it's not for the grace of God, we will pay justly, rightly, in the fires of hell for that hard-hearted response we chose. It is the grace of God that meets people like that in that place and says, open your eyes. He opens the eyes of the blind. He helps us to realize how poor we are and needy and desperate and broken. Self-righteous pride is at the heart of this rejection. And the Pharisees were in the crowd. They were hearing from God Himself, their arms folded, condemning Him. You just imagine how that would look if you were Jesus. It is the offense of the gospel. The offense of the gospel that many, many, many people stumble over. I mean, Savior. I need a Savior. I'm an American. Right? I'd pull myself up by my own bootstraps. I'm a self-made man. And I sing at my funeral. I did it my way. 
Why would I bend my knee to anybody? The offense of the gospel is this. Sinner, come home. Oh, sinner, come home. How many people get stuck on that word? Sinner. Oh, no, that's, that's, that's not me. I could give you a few people that that is, right? You look over there or there or there or there. That I'm fine. I'm, I'm, I'm pretty much a good person. It is the grace of God that opens our eyes to see our desperate need and humbles us to bend our knee and come. Come. If you're here this morning and you feel in your heart the stirring of God, Open your eyes to the way things are. See your sin. See your sin. And turn to Him. Run to Him. And you will find a home. You will find life. So a response, just say this, God is not looking for great people. That's not who He's looking for. God is not looking for people who are impressed with themselves, their righteousness and their works. He is calling people to repent and believe in Christ. I join Jeremy Camp in saying it this way, great is my sin, but greater is the cross of Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and praise you for the offense of the gospel. We thank you that you confront us with the way things are. May we, by your grace, Lord, be faithful to this gospel and not shy away from the offense of the gospel. We are needy, sinners, rebels. And even in the face of that, you call us to come. You love us. You meet us in our sins. Oh, Lord, I pray today for any who are here in this place that you would open their eyes. Point their, their gaze to Jesus Christ, their only hope. Stir their hearts to delight in Him and choose Him as life and Savior and Lord. Pray that we would all never move on from that. Father, we thank You that that is our greatest delight in life and in death, that we know You. We give You praise and honor for the ministry of John the Baptist and for the greatness of our Messiah, Jesus. It's in His name we pray. Amen.